there is a, you know, a strong need for the sort of conversations uh, that you're, I think you're trying to start with the climate justice or the dead and dying paper. Right. Uh, I don't know. Thanks. I, yeah. <clears throat> I end up being kind of like, um, I don't know, sometimes like a little death and dying gremlin, I feel like where I'm like, let's talk about this. And then people are like, Oh, why? <laughs> not, even, not just related to climate justice or climate change, but just um, in general, uh, it tends to be, I think something that in at least sort of mainstream American culture um, mm-hmm. is uncomfortable to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like there are a lot of different nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think my my dogs have decided to start barking at my cat for some reason Aww. well yeah. sorry for the kitty but hello little dogs hi I'm Clement Lou and welcome to the third season of Just Sustainability In this episode of Just Sustainability, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Julia Gibson. Julia is core faculty within the Environmental Studies Program at Antioch University, New England. They're a philosopher who works at the intersection of animal ethics, bioethics, environmental ethics, mobility studies, and technology studies. I became familiar with Julia a couple years ago when someone, I can't remember who, sent me a draft version of her paper, Climate Justice for the Dead and Dying. I enjoyed it so much that I built a new module for my climate change and moral responsibility class around it and the questions that one might ask about the role of remembrance and palliation in efforts to respond to climate change. Julie has also written about climate justice more broadly, the ethics of animal research, and the role of speculative fiction for thinking about sustainability. In other words, they write about all the cool things I like to spend my time thinking about. Normally, I start the conversations that I share on just sustainability by asking my interlocutors to introduce themselves. But on this occasion, Julia and I just sort of dove in and started chatting about the difficulties that folks have with talking about death and dying. Uh, so you're saying American culture, uh, we tend to be uncomfortable talking about death and dying. Yeah. And so I feel like there are a lot of concerted efforts across different, I don't know, what's um, not just disciplines, but like different contexts and professions and fields where um, people are opening up those conversations in more concerted mm-hmm. ways. And that seems really necessary and exciting. I know it sounds weird to say it's exciting to talk about death and dying. Um, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, no, so the, I mean, it's something I've certainly noticed in like the last, I don't know, at least four or five years with my students, right? Like younger, like I think the discomfort comes from some of us older folks, right? Folks who've been, working on environmental stuff for a longer time uh right like uh, i think for many of us it feels like giving up Mm -hmm. i I think for those of us who grew up in the time of like you know ozone depletion and acid rain right things look really dire and then like somehow you know people got their shit together and then we managed to like not maybe not solve them but at least like substantially improve conditions relative to those problems Uh, yeah but, you know, and I, and I think so. those of us who grew up in that period and, right, like, think back to, like, oh, you know, like, 
you know, there was a time when the Cuyahoga River was lighting on fire, and then, yeah. you know, we, we dealt with that. We're going to deal with climate change. I mean, I, I right, like, 10 years ago, that's how I felt about climate change. When people, when uh, environmental philosophers kept emphasizing climate change, I was just like, I, I feel like this is going to be one that, like, seems real big, but, like, it's technically not that hard to solve. So, like, I, I imagine, like, you know, once we start seeing some of the the things happen that like folks are predicting, we'll really quickly get our, our you know, get our act together and do a, a real big carbon drawdown really rapidly because it wouldn't be that hard, technically speaking. But uh, I think I was wrong 10 years ago. And I think, you know, now it, it is the political difficulty of dealing with climate change mm-hmm. seems much worse than the political difficulties with dealing with other sort of problems we've done uh, we've dealt with in the past. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Thank I guess my, my sort of rambly point is I think younger folks recognize that, right? I think folks who didn't grow up, uh, maybe grew up slightly after, uh, ozone depletion and like, uh, right. Water pollution and acid rain and those other things that we sort of dealt with in the eighties and nineties and ha- who have the, the primary environmental problem has been climate change and seeing this sort of inactivity despite the, the screaming evidence that we should be acting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I remember. And I, on the other side of that, I remember growing up in like the eighties and nineties and feeling like fusion, like nuclear fusion was just around the corner. Right. So mm-hmm. like it wouldn't be, <laughs> I was talking to someone about this the other day. I feel like, um, yeah, I'd be like, well, climate change, like we're going to divest from fossil fuels cause we're going to have fusion and then all of our energy problems will be solved. And isn't that going to be great? Um, and there was some sort of minor breakthrough with fusion, like a in the spring or something. And I mm-hmm. hadn't thought about it for a long time. And I sort of remembered being like, "Oh yeah, we all thought that was going to be the solution." And maybe it still <laughs> could be, but it certainly is taking a lot longer than people thought it would. Yeah, and I'm actually at this point not convinced it's for lack of alternatives, right? So like, yeah. oh yeah, I, I I think we we wouldn't we don't actually even need fusion anymore. Like I think. We can. We might not be able to eliminate like burning of fossil fuels, but we certainly can draw down from a lot relative to what we're burning now. And uh, yeah, the I think the barriers are less that you know we can't do. It. Yeah. yeah, rather than we we for whatever reasons don't want to. Yeah. Um, Agreed. Yeah, I guess on that note, we sort of started <laughs> without like you know uh, introducing you, and so. Um, I, I tend to like to ask my interlocutors on this podcast to introduce them, introduce themselves in like by telling everybody who they are in their own words, rather than the sort of the professional introductions, just sort of a, who, who are you as a person, right? Who is Julia Gibson in the, in the, in the mind of Julia Gibson? Yeah. Thank, thank you, Clement. Um, I am, <laughs> <laughs> I environmental philosopher and um, part-time farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taken me a while to come to that word because I don't have my like hands in the dirt every day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I live on my family farm in Brewster, New York, mm-hmm. um, which is located on the on unceded land within the traditional territories of the Wappinger and the Muncie Lenape peoples. And my family's been farming this land since, um, well, I guess has owned the land since 
1794, um, had possibly been farming it, renting it um, for a decade or so before that, uh-huh. and built the you know family farmhouse in 1795. And so I grew up on and around this land, and um, I moved around for grad school and for other things, and lived a bunch of different places, and then have been really trying to get back here uh, for a while. Uh-huh. And a lot of the reason for that is because I really felt like in order to dig into the kinds of environmental and interspecies and um, like animal ethics and politics that I wanted to think about, um, uh-huh. I needed to have relationships in place and like thinking through things on a more abstract level was only getting me so far Uh and thinking through them through the lens of the farm was starting to feel even before I had been um, living here uh, full time was starting to feel really fruitful. And just like, I was Uh like, okay. Um, And then there's always, and then besides like the philosopher stuff, Um, this is where my family is. This is, you know, the place I consider my home and my family is a settler family. And, um, that comes with a lot of, uh, tensions and sort of needs to think really carefully through our relationship with this land from Uh that context as well, from a decolonial context, or at least, um, you know, decolonial, um, is a, is a word that implies action. So maybe we're not mm-hmm. thinking decolonially yet. Maybe we're thinking um, anti-colonially, although even that. So we're starting down a path, I'd say. <laughs> we're at least a kinder, friendlier <laughs> yeah. colonizer. <laughs> um, and I live here um, with my cat, Otter Song, and... Um, she has her own relationship with the mice that live in this little building. Um, it's called the corn crib and it's where the corn used to be stored uh-huh. and was sort of converted toward to sort of human habitation like a hundred years ago, but is still in a lot of ways is like clearly you're like, Oh yeah, this was, this was ideal for corn. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> and um yeah, I have a great love of of um, of animals, and have been getting more into gardening. And I usually companion with with rats, but I don't have any rats at the moment. Mm. Um, and that's also been a really great sort of interspecies and relational lens for me to think through a lot of these things. Even though rats mm. don't seem like the most straightforward route in, they're they do have because, a lot of personality, though. Yeah. They do have a lot of personality, um, and they're they're they run the gamut in all kinds of different domestication, mm-hmm. um, like forms of domestication, but also as a liminal species and um, wild. So, like within the same species, you get a lot of different um, forms of life. We could say mm-hmm. um, so. It's it's interesting to think through. Mm-hmm. I think that's. Oh, um, I really enjoy a good tomato sandwich. So that's especially this time of year. So maybe that's yeah. the end of my introduction. <laughs> no, it is. It is good tomato season right now. Uh, yeah. 
the this year we didn't end up actually growing any. We didn't end up growing anything edible. Uh, for the last few years, we've been uh, competing with uh, rabbits for anything we grow in our garden. So we've just been growing uh, flowers and stuff to hope that the rabbits opt to move away and go somewhere else before we start trying to grow food again. Yeah. Oddly, the rabbits have really been after my marigolds or I'm not sure it's rabbits, which is supposed to be the one thing they don't want to eat. So um, that's confusing, but at least they haven't been going after the cucumbers. So that's good. That's good. (laughs) Um, Before we get to the main topic I wanted to ask you about, you said something that caught my attention. So, you one of the reasons you said that you want to go back to your farm uh your family's farm was to kind of consider some of the environmental or interspecies relational stuff in a more practical manner that that's interesting to me would you say more about that yeah um I think um, one of the weird things about philosophy and I'm in environmental studies now i mean i I still think of myself as a philosopher, but I found a home in an interdisciplinary department um, at Antioch University. And, but one of the interesting things about philosophy is, I don't, at least for me, it was sort of like encourages you to not think of things personally, almost Mm. like, like the things, the, you know, activism in my life or, um, you know, like commitment to like veganism or vegetarianism and then veganism. Um, mm-hmm. It was like separate from the stuff I was thinking about in philosophy until I realized it wasn't. So that this also mm-hmm. sort of, cause I was initially into more like metaphysics and epistemology. And then I was like, Oh no, like animal politics is really what I want to be doing. Um, and a similar sort of thing happened with the farm where the work I was doing on the farm I just didn't think about it as philosophy right. and then realized that I'd been, sorry, now, now the cat is going to interrupt us. Um, <laughs> she has a very loud purr. So if that's, I don't know if this will be edited out or not, but she's no, like muscling her I, way right in front of the microphone. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I think, I think anytime a cat purrs on a, a podcast, <laughs> it's a good moment. So I am keeping that. Okay. <laughs> So, oh yeah, I can totally hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, just you got to settle so I can like regain my thought process. Okay, you going to sit? What are we going to do? <laughs> okay. So, one of So these project which like on a, on their face seemed like, oh yeah, of mm-hmm. course that's connected. Like I was working on like an animal policy for the farm um because we'd had a very um a very brief and kind of troubling policy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like, I want to work on a robust sort of um, document that can attend both practically, but also, you know, in a, in a deep way um, to the kinds of conflicts and problems that we're having. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then I was like, oh, that's that's doing philosophy, <laughs> which feels like I was like, why is it so hard? Like, why is that not obvious um, to me? And then I was like, what else am I like? What else am I not thinking of as part of my work um, here that is? 
And I started feeling like some of my best thinking and and acting, right? Too like like practice was coming out of my relationships on the farm. Um I'm on the family board for the farm. Um and that has been one channel for doing that. I also now now that I live here, I also um do like groundskeeping and sort of liaising in various roles. Um, and I feel like those are also interesting channels for this work. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I think it's, you know, and take like, I don't, I mean, almost anything, but it's, it, I feel like you get to a point where you're like, Oh, I guess we're going to have to figure that out in context. Right. Mm. Um, or in practice. And, you know, I think there's a lot of like, attention to the fact that context matters, right? You're like, well, we can't get farther in this because the context is really going to matter. At least if you're doing sort of like engaged um, philosophical work. Right. And I'm like, but I want to know what the other pieces are. And I kind of want to, and I I also think it needs to go the other direction too, right? So it's not right. just like, well, we figure out the other stuff, but we don't figure out the contextual pieces. I'm like, what if we're working contextually first what does that tell us about the other kinds of frameworks and scaffolding that then grow out of that and do they grow differently um i think the answer to that is almost certainly yes yeah um, yeah well, it, well it's interesting you say that because right, it makes me think about about methodology of like when it comes to like kind of inquiry in general like like right academic professional inquiry right so i i, I mean i think People abstract away to make problems more tractable, right? To make them easier to deal with, right? Like yeah. with too much context, it uh, gets hard to start isolating, like you know, causes and effects and the relationships mm-hmm. between them. Um, but philosophers seem to to somehow gotten that wrong in the last like 60, 70 years, where right the abstracting stopped being a necessary evil to make a a, a difficult question easier to answer to being thought of as the ideal sort of answer yeah right like that the that the abstract answer is in some way more fundamental or foundational than a contextual answer which i don't think that's how people right that i don't think that's why people abstract away right mm-hmm. it, i mean at least for folks who aren't philosophers so it's interesting that you're right that you have the i think that's a cool insight yeah i mean and i think you're right right like i think if we want fuller answers and we want more accurate answers and we want more useful and actionable answers or maybe answers that are just sort of more descriptive of the world mm-hmm. we need to have more contextual answers even if they're difficult yeah um yeah yeah well no and then, and i certainly agree with you that like i think philosophical like scholarship and like practice is richer when when one engages in the world in practical ways around the things you study right so like um I think I have a similar experience with you, except for I, I don't farm. I live in a house that used to be a farmhouse, but like the land has, right, that used to be the farm around the house has been subdivided away over the years by developers. And so, like, why I live in the original farmhouse and our garage is the original barn. Oh, wow. Uh, That's lovely. There isn't actually, there's only about an acre of land. So, like, you know, we have a, a garden. Um, but it's engaging with friends who are farmers, right? So, like, I have a few friends who 
started their careers as, you know, well, one started their career as a farmer and then became more of a, a food systems activist and like, uh, and like a, right, uh, an environmental activist. Another one started off as a, uh, ecologist and then decided to put the, his ecological knowledge into, uh, you know, thinking about like how to sustainably farm and then becoming a sustainable farmer. But oh, yes. interacting with those, those folks really changed the way, how I think about food systems, how I think about like what good agriculture looks like and like, right. Thinking through, uh, the complexities of like the things that I had otherwise wrote about. And now like kind of upon reflection with more experience in very simplistic ways. Yeah. As I feel like living here, those moments are very frequent <laughs> where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's not going to work. <laughs> well, I, I guess if you don't cringe, if you don't cringe at the things you wrote earlier in your career, you're not growing. So I, I, I think that's a sign of like being, uh, uh, intellectually honest, right. That you find your earlier work cringeworthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Or yeah. Or just like at least one piece of something, right? Like you're yeah, like, yeah. okay, that might be true in a sense, but also there's all these other pieces, all these other facets yeah. of what yeah. is true here. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely many moments when I read an old paper, I'm like, Ooh, I should have said this differently. I should have said something else here. Right. The rest of the paper is like, Oh, this is better than I remember it being, but like, this part isn't definitely something I would have changed now if I wrote it again. Yeah. And a, a good friend of mine, um, uh, she always says, you know, you, sh- you should own, you know, you, what is it? It's like, you should be so lucky that your work becomes obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that people look, <laughs> I don't know that those, that the younger generations look back and are like, okay, that was great for that time, but we've come, you know, a long yeah. ways from that. Um, so I think that can be part of it too. Hopefully. Yeah. That, that'd be, that, that would be nice. After remembering to give Julia an opportunity to introduce herself to all of you, since one of the things I was most excited to talk to them about was their paper, I thought it'd be worthwhile to ask them to give a brief introduction to climate justice for the dead and dying. Here's that conversation. Prior to like me asking you to introduce yourself, we were talking about your paper, Climate Justice for the Dead and Dying. Um, yeah, and I, I just want to ask you more about that paper because, right, just to give context for listeners, um, I I assigned the paper last year to my climate ethics class. Uh, and there, you know, uh, there's a lot of good literature about climate ethics, but it was your paper that resonated most with my students, right? So, like, when I, you know, look through all the re- written reflections that my students did and the student evaluations, every single one of the students almost, uh, cited your paper as something that was distinct to, like in their memory right that they that they really latched onto that they thought was really important that they like they had not seen something similar before that they thought was really important and was resonant and like they all had a very positive reflection like reaction to it which is rare right like both that like it caught that many people's attention so deeply but also that like it was universally positively regarded right so most of the time when you know if if there's something <laughs> that's like everybody comments on someone's going to say something bad about it (laughs) or like, right. Like, or, you know, like most of the time it's people are going to latch onto different things. So it's rare that like everybody latches on the same paper 
and says something positive about it. They said different positive things, but everyone said something positive. And so, um, yeah. So like made me think like, you know, that I thought the paper was really good, but it's not just me. I'm really, I'm very touched by that. Like that's been like the nicest thing to hear like all year to be on, like really. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, um, I'm happy to share it. I mean, uh, my students love the paper. I love the paper. And so uh, I thought this would be an opportunity to talk about that paper and maybe get some more eyes on it because I really think more people should be reading it. So uh, that noted, uh, <laughs> could you give people like sort of the, the the quick rundown version, the Cliff's Notes version of the, the paper? Yeah. Um, I wanted to start with a little story that I think was in an I don't think it actually made it into the final version of the paper. Um, okay. Which is that I, I, cause I think this will help give it some context Okay. and maybe refresh my memory <laughs> if it is in the paper. <laughs> um, I worked at a environmental organization um, or a conservation organization for salmon. It was called wild salmon center. Mm-hmm. Um and I, for two years before I, I like between college and grad school mm-hmm. and I was so grateful for my time there, but, and it is in many ways what like spurred me to go back to school for, to do environmental ethics and, and like interspecies ethics. Um, mm-hmm. And the wild salmon center was really like, was, and is we were really focused on preservation work. So like mm-hmm. protecting um, sort of remaining intact, quote unquote, ecosystems and salmon runs. And it sort of distinguished itself um, in the way that you kind of have to do when you're a nonprofit and like looking for funding um, from rest- from organizations that did restoration. And um, and my a question that emerged for me during my time there, this could be a much longer story, but I'll try to keep it short. Um it was sort of like, what about those salmon runs that like, so wild salmon center isn't working on restoration projects, or at least at the time it wasn't. Um, And so, and then there are organizations that are working on restoration. And I'm like, what about those, um, the salmon runs that nobody's working on that like are, are seen as like beyond, um, beyond hope or beyond recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems like that was very troubling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the seeds for this paper sort of grew out of that. And so what the paper does is, is offer a critique of a, I'd say a strong current within mainstream environmentalism, mm-hmm. which tends to be what I'm calling very past oriented. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's focused on solutions like preservation and restoration, which are either seeking to sort of pause the clock and keep things as they are mm-hmm. or um, rewind the clock to a certain time. Right. Um, and, and so it's orient. Yeah. So it's oriented towards the past in a particular way mm-hmm. um, in keeping things in a certain um, familiar dynamic. And there's all kinds of things we could say about when the clock gets, st- gets stopped, you know, there's certain aspects of, um, sort of make the environment great again, you know, (laughs) kind of stuff, right? It's like, "Mm, which past are we talking about and why? Um, And who is it good for and all kinds of things. 
Um, but what that does is sort of is sort of is leave off of sort of the ethical radar, um, you know, species, habitats, um, ecosystem, sort of whatever units we're thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, the purring is back. I, I see. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> she's a very distinctive purr. And so, and sort of leave us both in practice and in theory with these, right, these salmon runs that like no one's paying attention to, right, right. in in practice or theory. Um, and so the article, you know, makes that critique and and then makes a case for why we shouldn't be um, sort of circums- circumscribing our um, ethics to to these past oriented approaches, especially in the time of climate change. Mm-hmm. And, and it does acknowledge, I do acknowledge that like things have been shifting because there is this, this growing realization. It's been there for like, there are many communities that um, have been experiencing like environmental dystopia and apocalypse for hundreds of years. So when I say we or a growing realization, I mean within sort of mainstream white environmentalism and Mm -hmm. environmental ethics, this clearly isn't a, like a a universal aha moment. Um, It's a very specific kind of aha moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah. And so what, what comes out of this um, critique and then suggestion that we not leave things there is the idea that we want to be attending. We ought to be attending to um, the dying and the dead and, Mm. um, and that our environmental ethics should be able to attend to them. And that this is especially important in the time of climate change, um, though certainly not just important in that context. And the terms I use for those things are remembrance um, ethics for the dead and palliative ethics for the dying. Mm-hmm. This seems to me to be a good place to end this episode. We've learned a bit about who Julie is, how they think about their approach to their philosophical scholarship, and have been introduced to their paper, Climate Justice for the Dead and Dying. In the next episode, we'll learn more about that paper and what Julie thinks about the importance of remembrance and palliation in relation to climate change. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, Please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.